narrative and legendary poems by John Greenleaf Whittier Among the Hills Prelude Among the Hills the Dole of Yawthorkel The Two Rabbins Norambega Miriam Maud Muller Mary Garvin The Ranger Nauhot the Deacon The Sisters Marguerite The Robin Among the Hills This poem, when originally published, was dedicated to Annie Fields, wife of the distinguished publisher, James T. Fields, of Boston, in grateful acknowledgement of the strength and inspiration I have found in her friendship and sympathy. The poem in its first form was entitled The Wife, an idol of Bear Camp Water, and appeared in the Atlantic Monthly for January, 1868. When I published the volume Among the Hills, in December of the same year, I expanded the prelude and filled out also the outlines of the story. Prelude Along the roadside, like the flowers of gold that tawny Incas for their gardens wrought, heavy with sunshine droops the golden rod, and the red pennons of the cardinal flowers hang motionless upon their upright staves. The sky is hot and hazy, and the wind, vying weary with its long flight from the south, unfelt, yet closely scanned, yon maple leaf with faintest motion, as one stirs in dreams, confesses it. The locust by the wall stabs the noon silence with his sharp alarm. A single haycart down the dusty road creaks slowly, with its driver fast asleep on the load's top. Against the neighboring hill, huddled along the stone wall's shady side, the sheep show white, as if a snowdrift still defied the dog star. Through the open door a drowsy smell of flowers' gray heliotrope and white sweet clover and shy mignonette comes faintly in and silent chorus lends to the pervading symphony of peace. No time is this for hands long overworn to task their strength, and unto him be praise who giveth quietness, the stress and strain of years that did the work of centuries have ceased, and we can draw our breath once more freely and full. So, as yon harvesters make glad their nooning underneath the elms with tale and riddle and old snatch of song, I lay aside grave themes, and idly turn the leaves of memory's sketchbook, dreaming o'er old summer pictures of the quiet hills, and human life, as quiet, at their feet. And yet not idly all. A farmer's son, proud of field lore and harvest craft, and feeling all their fine possibilities, how rich and restful even poverty and toil become when beauty, harmony, and love sit at their humble hearth as angels sat at evening in the patriarch's tent, when man makes labor noble, and his farmers fuck the symbol of a Christian chivalry tender, and just and generous to her who clothes with grace all duty, still. I know too well the picture has another side, how wearily the grind of toil goes. On where love is wanting, how the eye and ear and heart are starved amidst the plenitude of nature, and how hard and colorless is life without an atmosphere. I look across the lapse of half a century, and call to mind old homesteads, where no flower told that the spring had come, but evil weeds— nightshade and rough-leaved burdock in the place of the sweet doorway greeting of the rose and honeysuckle, where the house walls seemed blistering in sun, without a tree or vine to cast the tremulous shadow of its leaves across the curtainless windows, from whose panes fluttered the signal rags of shiftlessness. Within, the cluttered kitchen floor, unwashed, broom-clean I think they called it, the best room stifling with cellar damp, shut from the air in hot midsummer, bookless, pictureless, save the inevitable sampler hung over the fireplace, or a morning piece, a green-haired woman, peony-cheeked, beneath impossible willows, the wide-throated hearth bristling with faded pine boughs half concealing the piled-up rubbish at the chimney's back, and, in sad keeping with all things about them, shrill, querulous women, sour and sullen men, untidy, loveless, old before their time, with scarce a human interest save their own monotonous round of small economies, or the poor scandal of the neighborhood, blind to the beauty everywhere revealed, treading the mayflowers with regardless feet. For them the song sparrow and the bobolink sang not, nor winds made music in the leaves. For them in vain October's holocaust burned. Gold and crimson, over all the hills, the sacramental mystery of the woods. Churchgoers, fearful of the unseen powers, but grumbling over pulpit tax and purent, saving, as shrewd economists, their souls and winter pork with the least possible outlay of salt and sanctity, in daily life showing as little actual comprehension of Christian charity and love and duty, 
as if the Sermon on the Mount had been outdated like a last year's almanac rich in broad woodlands and in half-tilled fields. And yet so pinched and bare and comfortless, the various straggler limping on his. Rounds, the sun and air his sole inheritance, laughed at a poverty that paid its taxes, and hugged his rags in self-complacency. Not such should be the homesteads of a land where whoso wisely wills and acts may dwell as king and lawgiver, in broad-acred state, with beauty, art, taste, culture, books, to make his hour of leisure richer than a life of fourscore to the barons of old time, our yeoman should be equal to his home set in the fair, green valleys, purple-walled, a man to match his mountains, not to creep dwarfed, and a base below them. I would fain in this light way, of which I needs must own with the knife-grinder of whom Canning sings. Story, God bless you! I have none to tell you! Invite the eye to see and heart to feel the beauty and the joy within their reach, home, and home loves, and the beatitudes of nature free to all. Haply in years that wait to take the places of our own, heard where some breezy balcony looks down on happy homes, or where the lake in the moon sleeps dreaming of the mountains, fair as Ruth, in the old Hebrew pastoral, at the feet of Boaz, even this simple lay of mine may seem the burden of a prophecy, finding its late fulfillment in a change slow as the oak's growth, lifting manhood up through broader culture, finer manners, love, and reverence, to the level of the hills. O golden age, whose light is of the dawn, and not of sunset, forward, not behind, flood the new heavens and earth, and with thee bring all the old virtues, whatsoever things are pure and honest and of good repute, but add thereto whatever bard has sung or seer has told of when in trance and dream they saw the happy isles of prophecy let justice hold her scale, and truth divide between the right and wrong. But give the heart the freedom of its fair inheritance. Let the poor prisoner, cramped and starved so long, at nature's table feast his ear and eye with joy and wonder. Let all harmonies of sound, form, color, motion, wait upon the princely guest, whether in soft attire of leisure clad, or the coarse frock of toil, and lending life to the dead form of faith, give human nature reverence for the sake of one who bore it, making it divine with the ineffable tenderness of God. Let common need, the brotherhood of prayer, the airship of an unknown destiny, the unsolved mystery roundabout. Us make a man more precious than the gold of Ophir. Sacred, inviolate, unto whom all things should minister, as outward types and signs of the eternal beauty which fulfills the one great purpose of creation, love, the sole necessity of earth and heaven. For weeks the clouds had raked the hills and vexed the valleys with raining, and all the woods were sad with mist, and all the brooks complaining. At last, a sudden night storm tore the mountain vales asunder and swept the valleys clean before the besom of the thunder. Through sandwich notched the west wind sang good morrow to the cotter, and once again Chikorua's horn of shadow pierced the water. Above his broad lake Ossipi, once more the sunshine wearing, stooped, tracing on that silver shield his grim armorial bearing. Clear drawn against the hard blue sky, the peaks had winter's keenness, and close on autumn's frost, the valleys had more than June's fresh greenness. Again the sodden forest floors with golden lights were checkered, once more rejoicing leaves and wind and sunshine danced and flickered. It was as if the summer's late atoning for its sadness had borrowed every season's charm to end its days in gladness. Rivers of gold mist flowing down from far celestial fountains, the great sun flaming through the rifts beyond the wall of mountains. We paused at last where homebound cows brought down the pasture's treasure and in the barn the rhythmic flails beat out a harvest measure. We heard the nighthawk's sullen plunge, the crow his tree-mates calling the shadows lengthening down the slopes about our feet were falling. And through them smote the level sun in broken lines of splendor, touched the gray rocks and made the green of the shorn grass more tender. The maples bending o'er the gate, their arch of leaves just tinted with yellow warmth, the golden glow of coming autumn hinted. Keen white between the farmhouse showed, and smiled on porch and trellis, the fair democracy of flowers that equals cot and palace. And weaving garlands for her dog, twixt chidings and caresses, a human flower of childhood shook the sunshine from her tresses. Clear drawn against the hard blue sky, the peaks had winter's keenness, and close on autumn's frost, the valleys had more than June's fresh greenness. Again the sodden forest floors with golden lights were checkered, 
once more rejoicing leaves and wind and sunshine danced and flickered. It was as if the summer's late atoning for its sadness had borrowed every season's charm to end its days in gladness. I called to mind those banded valas of shadow and of shining, through which, my hostess at my side, I drove in days declining. We held our sidling way above the river's widening shallows, by homesteads old, with wide-flung barns swept through and through by swallows. By maple orchards, belts of pine and larches climbing darkly the mountain slopes, and over all, the great peaks rising starkly. You should have seen that long hill range with gaps of brightness riven, how through each pass and hollow streamed the purpling lights of heaven. On either hand we saw the signs of fancy and of shrewdness, where taste had wound its arms of vines round thrift's uncomely rudeness. The sun-brown farmer in his frock shook hands, and called to Mary bare-armed, as Juno might, she came, white aproned from her dairy. Her air, her smile, her motions, told of womanly completeness, a music as of household songs was in her voice of sweetness. Not fair alone in curve and line, but something more and better, the secret charm eluding art, its spirit, not its letter. An inborn grace that nothing lacked of culture or appliance, the warmth of genial courtesy, the calm of self-reliance. Before her queenly womanhood how dared our hostess utter the paltry errand of her need to buy her fresh-churned butter? She led the way with housewife pride, her goodly store disclosing, full tenderly the golden balls with practiced hands disposing. Then, while along the western hills we watched the changeful glory of sunset, on our homeward way, I heard her simple story. The early crickets sang, the stream plashed through my friend's narration her rustic padua of the hills lost in my free translation. More wise, she said, than those who swarm our hills in middle summer, she came, when June's first roses blow, to greet the early comer. From school and ball and rout she came, the city's fair, pale daughter, to drink the wine of mountain air beside the bear camp water. Her step grew firmer on the hills that watch our homesteads over, on cheek and lip, from summer fields she caught the bloom of clover. For health comes sparkling in the streams from cool Chikorua stealing there's iron in our northern winds. Our pines are trees of healing. She sat beneath the broad-armed elms that skirt the mowing meadow, and watched the gentle west wind weave the grass with shine and shadow. Beside her, from the summer heat to share her grateful screening, with forehead bared, the farmer stood, upon his pitchfork leaning. Framed in its damp, dark locks, his face had nothing mean or common, strong, manly, true, the tenderness and pride beloved of woman. She looked up, glowing with the health the country air had brought her, and laughing said, You lack a wife, your mother lacks a daughter. To mend your frock and bake your bread you do not need a lady be sure among these brown old homes is someone waiting ready. Some fair, sweet girl with skillful hand and cheerful heart for treasure, who never played with ivory keys, or danced the polka's measure. He bent his black brows to a frown, he set his white teeth tightly. Tea is well, he said, for one like you to choose for me so lightly. You think, because my life is rude I take no note of sweetness I tell you love has not to do with meetness or unmeetness. Itself its best excuse, it asks no leave of pride or fashion when silken zone or homespun frock it stirs with throbs of passion. You think me deaf and blind, you bring your winning graces hither as free as if from cradle time we two had played together. You tempt me with your laughing eyes, your cheek of sundown's blushes, a motion as of waving grain, a music as of threshes. The plaything of your summer sport, the spells you weave around me you cannot at your will undo, nor leave me as you found me. You go as lightly as you came, your life is well without me. What care you that these hills will close like prison walls about me? No mood is mine to seek a wife, or daughter for my mother who loves you loses and that love all power to love another. I dare your pity or your scorn, with pride your own exceeding. I fling my heart into your lap without a word of pleading. She looked up in his face of pain so archly, yet so tender, and if I lend you mine, she said, will you forgive the lender? Nor frock nor tan can hide the man, and see not, my farmer, how weak and fond a woman waits behind this silken armor? I love you, on that love alone, and not my worth, presuming, will you not trust for summer fruit the tree and mayday blooming? Alone the hangbird overhead, his hair swung cradle straining, looked down to see love's miracle, the giving that is gaining. And so the farmer found a wife, 
His mother found a daughter that looks no happier home than hers on pleasant bear camp water. Flowers spring to blossom where she walks the careful ways of duty. Our hard, stiff lines of life with her are flowing curves of beauty. Our homes are cheerier for her sake, our dooryards brighter blooming, and all about the social air is sweeter for her coming. Unspoken homilies of peace her daily life is preaching, the still refreshment of the dew is her unconscious teaching. And never tenderer hand than hers units the brow of ailing, her garments to the sick man's ear have music in their trailing. And when, in pleasant harvest moons, the youthful huskers gather, or sleigh drives on the mountain ways defy the winter weather, in sugar camps, when south and warm the winds of March are blowing, and sweetly from its thawing veins the maple's blood is flowing. In summer, where some lilied pond its virgin zone is bearing, or where the ruddy autumn fire lights up the apple paring, the coarseness of a ruder time her finer mirth displaces, a subtler sense of pleasure fills each rustic sport she graces. Her presence lends its warmth and health to all who come before it. If woman lost us Eden, such as she alone restore it. For larger life and wiser aims the farmer is her debtor, who holds to his another's heart must needs be worse or better. Through her his civic service shows a puritone ambition, no double consciousness divides the man and politician. In parties doubtful ways he trusts her instincts to determine. At the loud poles, the thought of her recalls Christ's mountain sermon. He owns her logic of the heart, and wisdom of unreason, supplying while he doubts and weighs the needed word in season. He sees with pride her richer thought, her fancies freer ranges, and love thus deepen to respect his proof against all changes. And if she walks at ease in ways his feet are slow to travel, and if she reads with cultured eyes what his may scarce unravel. Still clearer, for her keener sight of beauty and of wonder, he learns the meaning of the hills he dwelt from childhood under. And higher, warmed with summer lights, or winter-crowned and hoary, the ridge horizon lifts for him its inner veils of glory. He has his own free, bookless lore, the lessons nature taught him, the wisdom which the woods and hills and toiling men have brought him. The steady force of will whereby her flexile grace seems sweeter, the sturdy counterpoise which makes her woman's life completer. A latent fire of soul which lacks no breath of love to fan it, and wit that, like his native brooks, plays over solid granite. How dwarfed against his manliness she sees the poor pretension, the wants, the aims, the follies, born of fashion and convention. How life behind its accidents stands strong and self-sustaining, the human fact transcending all the losing and the gaining. And so in grateful interchange of teacher and of hearer, their lives their true distinctness keep while daily drawing nearer. And if the husband or the wife in home's strong light discovers such slight defaults as failed to meet the blinded eyes of lovers, why need we care to ask? Who dreams without their thorns of roses, or wonders that the truest steel the readiest spark discloses? For still in mutual sufferance lies the secret of true living. Love scarce is love that never knows the sweetness of forgiving. We send the squire to general court, he takes his young wife thither. No prouder man election day rides through the sweet June weather. He sees with eyes of manly trust all hearts to her inclining not less for him his household light that others share its shining. Thus, while my hostess spake, there grew before me, warmer tinted and outlined with a tenderer grace, the picture that she hinted. The sunset smoldered as we drove beneath the deep hill shadows. Below us wreaths of white fog walked like ghosts the haunted meadows. Sounding the summer night, the stars dropped down their golden plummets. The pale arc of the northern lights rose o'er the mountain summits. Until, at last, beneath its bridge, we heard the bear camp flowing, and saw across the maple lawn the welcome home lights glowing. And musing on the tale I heard, tea were well, thought I, if often to rugged farm life came the gift to harmonize and soften. If more and more we found the troth of fact and fancy plighted, and culture's charm and labor's strength in rural homes united. The simple life, the homely hearth, with beauty's sphere surrounding, and blessing toil where toil abounds with graces more abounding. 1868. The Dole of Jarl Thorkel. The land was pale with famine and racked with fever pain. The frozen fjords were fishless, the earth withheld her grain. Men saw the boating filja before them come and go, and through their dreams, the Erdermen from west to east sailed slow. Jarl Thorkel of the Vera Yuletime made his vow, 
On Rictal's holy doomstone he slew to fry his cow. To bounteous fry he slew her. To scald, the younger Norn, who watches over birth and death, he gave her calf unborn. And his little gold-haired daughter took up the sprinkling rod, and smeared with blood the temple and the wide lips of the god. Horse below, the winter watered round its ice blocks o'er and o'er, jets of foam, like ghosts of dead waves, rose and fell along the shore. The red torch of the yokul, aloft in icy space, shone down on the bloody horgstones and the statue's carven face. And closer round and grimmer beneath its baleful light the Jotun shapes of mountains came crowding through the night. The gray-haired hearser trembled as a flame by wind is blown. A weird power moved his white lips, and their voice was not his own. The ass are thirst, he muttered. The gods must have more blood before the tun shall blossom or fish shall fill the flood. The Asser thirst and hunger, and hence our blight and ban, the mouths of the strong gods water for the flesh and blood of man. Whom shall we give the strong ones? Not warriors sword on thigh, but let the nursling infant and bedrid old man die. So be it, cried the young men. There needs nor doubt nor parl, but knitting hard his red brows, in silence stood the arl. A sound of woman's weeping at the temple door was heard but the old men bowed their white heads and answered not a word. Then the dream wife of Thingvala, Avala young and fair, sang softly, stirring with her breath the veil of her loose hair. She sang, The winds from Alfheim bring never sound of strife, the gifts for fry the meatest are not of death, but life. He loves the grass-green meadows, the grazing kind's sweet breath. He loathes your bloody horgstones, your gifts that smell of death. No wrong by wrong is righted, no pain is cured by pain. The blood that smokes from doom rings falls back in red rain. The gods are what you make them, as earth shall Asgard prove, and hate will come of hating, and love will come of love. Make dole of SKYR and black bread that old and young may live, and look to fry for favor when first like fry you give. Even now o'er in George sea meadows the summer dawn begins the tun shall have its harvest, the fjord its glancing fins. Then up and swore Jarl Thorkel, by Gimli and by Hell, O Vala of Thingvala, thou singest wise and well. Too dear the Asser's favors bought with our children's lives. Better die than shame in living our mothers and our wives. The fool shall give his portion to him who hath most need. Of curdled Skyr and black bread, be daily doled decreed. He broke from off his neck shame three links of beaten gold, and each man, at his bidding, brought gifts for young and old. Then mothers nursed their children and daughters fed their sires, and health sat down with plenty before the next yule fires. The horgstones stand in Rictal, the doom ring still remains, but the snows of a thousand winters have washed away the stains. Christ ruleth now, the Assur have found their twilight dim, and wiser than she dreamed, of old the Vala sang of him 1868. The Two Rabbins The rabbi Nathan two score years and ten walked blameless through the evil world, and then, just as the almond blossomed in his hair, met a temptation all too strong to bear, and miserably sinned. So, adding not falsehood to guilt, he left his seat, and taught no more among the elders, but went out from the great congregation girt about with sackcloth, and with ashes on his head, making his gray locks grayer. Long he prayed, smiting his breast, then, as the book he laid open before him for the bath call's choice, pausing to hear that daughter of a voice, Behold the royal preacher's words. A friend loveth at all times, yea, unto the end, and for the evil day thy brother lives. Marveling, he said, It is the Lord who gives counsel in need. At Ekbatana dwells Rabbi Ben Isaac, who all men excels in righteousness and wisdom, as the trees of Lebanon the small weeds that the bees bow with their weight. I will arise and lay my sins before him. And he went his way barefooted, fasting long, with many prayers but even as one who, followed unawares, suddenly in the darkness feels a hand thrill with its touch his own, and his cheek fanned by odors subtly sweet, and whispers near of words he loathes, yet cannot choose but hear. So, while the rabbi journeyed, chanting low the wail of David's penitential woe, before him still the old temptation came, and mocked him with the motion and the shame of such desires that, shuddering, he abhorred himself and crying mightily to the Lord to free his soul and cast the demon out, smote with his staff the blankness round about. At length, 
in the low light of a spent day, the towers of Ekbat and afar away rose on the desert's rim, and Nathan, faint and footsore, pausing where for some dead saint the faith of Islam reared a domed tomb, saw someone kneeling in the shadow, whom he greeted kindly. May the Holy One answer thy prayers, O stranger! Whereupon the shape stood up with a loud cry, and then, clasped in each other's arms, the two gray men wept, praising him whose gracious providence made their paths one. But straightway, as the sense of his transgression smote him, Nathan tore himself away. O friend beloved, no more worthy am I to touch thee, for I came, foul from my sins, to tell thee all my shame. Haply thy prayers, since naught availeth mine, may purge my soul, and make it white like thine. Pity me, O Ben Isaac, I have sinned. Awestruck Ben Isaac stood. The desert wind blew his long mantle backward, laying bare the mournful secret of his shirt of hair. I too, O friend, if not in act, he said, in thought have verily sinned. Hast thou not read better the I should see than that desire should wander, burning with a hidden fire that tears and prayers quench not? I come to thee for pity and for help, as thou to me. Pray for me, O my friend. But Nathan cried, Pray thou for me, Ben Isaac. Side by side in the low sunshine by the turban stone they knelt, each made his brother's woe his own, forgetting, in the agony and stress of pitying love, his claim of selfishness, peace, for his friend besought, his own became, his prayers were answered in another's name, and when at last they rose up to embrace, each saw God's pardon in his brother's face. Long after, when his headstone gathered moss, traced on the targa marge of Ankylos and Rabbi Nathan's hand these words were read. Slash hope not the cure of sin till self is dead, forget it in love's service, and the debt thou canst not pay the angels shall forget. Heaven's gate is shut to him who comes alone, save thou a soul, and it shall save thy own, forward slash. 1868. Norembega. Norembega, or Norembeg, is the name given by early French fishermen and explorers to a fabulous country south of Cape Breton first discovered by Verrazzani in 1524. It was supposed to have a magnificent city of the same name on a great river, probably the Penobscot. The site of this barbaric city is laid down on a map published at Antwerp in 1570. In 1604 Champlain sailed in search of the northern El Dorado, 22 leagues up the Penobscot from the Isle Haute. He supposed the river to be that of Norembega but wisely came to the conclusion that those travelers who told of the great city had never seen it. He saw no evidences of anything like civilization, but mentions the finding of a cross, very old and mossy, in the woods. The winding way the serpent takes the mystic water took, from where, to count its beaded lakes, the forest sped its brook. A narrow space twixt shore and shore, for sun or stars to fall, while evermore, behind, before, closed in the forest wall. The dim wood hiding underneath wan flowers without a name, life tangled with decay and death, league after league the same. Unbroken over swamp and hill the rounding shadow lay, save where the river cut out will a pathway to the day. Beside that track of air and light, weak as a child unweaned, at shut of day a Christian knight upon his henchman leaned. The embers of the sunset's fires along the clouds burned down. I see, he said, the domes and spires of Norembega town. Alack! The domes, O master mine, are golden clouds on high. Yon spire is but the branchless pine that cuts the evening sky. Oh, hush and hark! What sounds are these but chants and holy hymns? Thou hearst the breeze that stirs the trees though all their leafy limbs. Is it a chapel bell that fills the air with its low tone? Thou hearst the tinkle of the rills, the insect's vesper drone. The Christ be praised, he sets for me a blessed cross in sight. Now, nay, tis but yon blasted tree with two gaunt arms outright. Be it wine so sad or tree so stark, it mattereth not, my knave. Methinks to funeral hymns I hark, the cross is for my grave. My life is sped, I shall not see my home set sails again. The sweetest eyes of Normandy shall watch for me in vain. Yet onward still to ear and I the baffling marvel calls. I fain would look before I die on Norembega's walls. So, haply, it shall be thy part at Christian feet to lay the mystery of the desert's heart my dead hand plucked away. Leave me an hour of rest, go thou and look from yonder heights, perchance the valley even now is starred with city lights. 
The henchman climbed the nearest hill. He saw nor tower nor town, but through the drear woods, lone and still, the river rolling down. He heard the stealthy feet of things whose shapes he could not see, a flutter as of evil wings, the fall of a dead tree. The pines stood black against the moon, a sword of fire beyond. He heard the wolf howl, and the loon laugh from his reedy pond. He turned him back. O master dear, we are but men misled, and thou hast sought a city here to find a grave instead. As God shall will. What matters where a true man's cross may stand, so heaven be o'er it here as there in pleasant Norman land? These woods, perchance, no secret hide of lordly tower and hall, yon river in its wanderings wide has washed no city wall. Yet mirrored in the sullen stream the holy stars are given is Norumbega, then, a dream whose waking is in heaven. No builded wonder of these lands my weary eyes shall see, a city never made with hands alone awaiteth me. Herb Sion Mystica, I see its mansions passing fair, slash condit a calo slash. Let me be, dear Lord, a dweller there. Above the dying exile hung the vision of the bard, as faltered on his failing tongue the song of good Bernard. The henchman dug at dawn a grave beneath the hemlocks brown, and to the desert's keeping gave the Lord a fief and town. Years after, when the Sir Champlain sailed up the unknown stream, and Norembega proved again a shadow and a dream, he found the Norman's nameless grave within the hemlock's shade, and stretching wide its arms to save the sign that God had made. The cross-bowed tree that marked the spot and made it holy ground he needs the earthly city not who hath the heavenly found. 1869. Miriam. To Frederick A. P. Barnard. The years are many since, in youth and hope, under the charter oak, our horoscope we drew thick-studded with all favoring stars. Now, with gray beards, and faces seamed with scars from life's hard battle, meeting once again, we smile, half sadly, over dreams so vain, knowing, at last, that it is not a man who walketh to direct his steps, or plan his permanent house of life. Alike we love the muses' haunts, and all our fancies move to measures of old song. How since that day our feet have parted from the path that lay so fair before us. Rich, from lifelong search of truth, Within thy academic porch thou sittest now, Lord of a realm of fact, thy servitors the sciences exact, still listening with thy hand on nature's keys, to hear the Samian spheral harmonies and rhythm of law. I called from dream and song, thank God, so early to a strife so long, that, ere it closed, the black, abundant hair of boyhood rested silver-sown and spare on manhood's temples, now at sunset chime tread with fond feet the path of morning time. And if perchance too late I linger where the flowers have ceased to blow, and trees are bare, thou, wiser in thy choice, wilt scarcely blame the friend who shields his folly with thy name. Amesbury, 10th M.O., 1870. One Sabbath day my friend and I after the meeting, quietly passed from the crowded village lanes, white with dry dust for lack of rains, and climbed the neighboring slope, with feet slackened and heavy from the heat, although the day was well nigh done and the low angle of the sun along the naked hillside cast our shadows as of giants vast. We reached, at length, the topmost swell, whence, either way, the green turf fell in terraces of nature down to fruit-hung orchards, and the town with white, pretenseless houses, tall church steeples, and o'ershadowing all, huge mills whose windows had the look of eager eyes that ill could brook the Sabbath rest. We traced the track of the sea-seeking river back, glistening for miles above its mouth, through the long valley to the south, and looking eastward, cool to view, stretched the illimitable blue of ocean, from its curved coastline, sombered and still, the warm sunshine filled with pale gold dust all the reach of slumbrous woods from hill to beach, slanted on walls of thronged retreats from city toil and dusty streets, on grassy bluff and dune of sand, and rocky islands miles from land, touched the far-glancing sails, and showed white lines of foam where long waves flowed dumb in the distance. In the north, dim through their misty hair, looked forth the space-dwarfed mountains to the sea, from mystery to mystery. So, sitting on that green hill-slope, we talked of human life, its hope and fear, and unsolved doubts, and what it might have been, and yet was not. And when at last the evening air grew sweeter for the bells of prayer ringing in steeples far below, we watched the people churchward go, each to his place as if thereon the true Shekinah only shone, 
and my friend queried how it came to pass that they who owned the same great master still could not agree to worship him in company. Then, broadening in his thought, he ran over the whole vast field of man, the varying forms of faith and creed that somehow served the holder's need, in which, unquestioned, undenied, uncounted millions lived and died, the Bibles of the ancient folk through which the heart of nations spoke, the old moralities which lent to home its sweetness and content, and rendered possible to bear the life of peoples everywhere and asked if we, who boast of light, claim not a too exclusive right to truths, which must for all be meant, like rain and sunshine freely sent. In bondage to the letter still, we give it power to cramp and kill, to tax God's fullness with a scheme narrower than Peter's housetop dream, his wisdom and his love with plans poor and inadequate as man's. It must be that he witnesses somehow to all men that he is that something of his saving grace reaches the lowest of the race, who through strange creed and right may draw the hints of a diviner law. We walk in clearer light, but then, is he not God? Are they not men? Are his responsibilities for us alone and not for these? And I made answer. Truth is one, and in all lands beneath the sun, whoso hath eyes to see may see the tokens of its unity. No scroll of creed its fullness wraps, we trace it not by schoolboy maps, free as the sun and arid is of latitudes and boundaries. In Vedic verse, in Dul Quran, our messages of good to man, the angels to our Aryan sires talked by the earliest household fires, the prophets of the elder day, the slant-eyed sages of Cathay, read not the riddle all amiss of higher life evolved from this. Nor doth it lessen what he taught, or make the gospel Jesus brought less precious that his lips retold some portion of that truth of old, denying not the proven seers, the tested wisdom of the years, confirming with his own impress the common law of righteousness. We search the world for truth, we cull the good, the pure, the beautiful, from graven stone and written scroll, from all old flower fields of the soul, and weary seekers of the best, we come back laden from our quest, to find that all the sages said is in the book our mothers read, and all our treasure of old thought in his harmonious fullness wrought who gathers in one sheaf complete the scattered blades of God's sown wheat. The common growth that mocketh good his all-embracing fatherhood. Wherever through the ages rise the altars of self-sacrifice, where love its arms has opened wide, or man for man has calmly died, I see the same white wings outspread that hovered o'er the master's head. Up from undated time they come, the martyr souls of heathendom, and to his cross and passion bring their fellowship of suffering. I trace his presence in the blind pathetic gropings of my kind, in prayers from sin and sorrow wrung, in cradle hymns of life they sung, each, in its measure, but a part of the unmeasured over heart, and with a stronger faith confess the greater that it owns the less. Good cause it is for thankfulness that the world blessing of his life with the long past is not at strife, that the great marvel of his death to the one order witnesseth, no doubt of changeless goodness wakes, no link of cause and sequence breaks, but one with nature rooted is in the eternal verities, whereby, while differing in degree as finite from infinity, the pain and loss for others born, love's crown of suffering meekly worn, the life man giveth for his friend become vicarious in the end, their healing place in nature take, and make life sweeter for their sake. So welcome I from every source the tokens of that primal force, older than heaven itself, yet new as the young heart it reaches to, beneath whose steady impulse rolls the tidal wave of human souls, guide, comforter, and inward word, the eternal spirit of the Lord nor fear I ought that science brings from searching through material things, content to let its glasses prove, not by the letter's oldness move. The myriad worlds on worlds that course the spaces of the universe, since everywhere the spirit walks the garden of the heart, and talks with man, as under Eden's trees, in all his varied languages. Why mourn above some hopeless flaw in the stone tables of the law, when scripture every day afresh is traced on tablets of the flesh? By inward sense, by outward signs, God's presence still the heart divines, through deepest joy of him we learn, in sorest grief to him we turn, and reason stoops its pride to share the childlike instinct of a prayer. And then, as is my wont, I told a story of the days of old, not found in printed books, in sooth, a fancy, with slight hint of truth, showing how differing faiths agree in one sweet law of charity. Meanwhile the sky had golden grown, our faces in its glory shone, but shadows down the valley swept, 
and gray below the ocean slept. As time and space I wandered o'er to tread the mogul's marble floor, and see a fairer sunset fall on Jumna's wave and Agra's wall. The good Shah Akbar, peace be his alway, came forth from the divan at close of day bowed with the burden of his many cares, worn with the hearing of unnumbered prayers, wild cries for justice, the importunate appeals of greed and jealousy and hate, and all the strife of sect and creed and right, Santan and Guru waging holy fight for the wise monarch, claiming not to be Allah's avenger, left his people free, with a feigned hope. His book scarce justified that all the paths of faith, though, severed wide, o'er which the feet of prayerful reverence passed, met at the gate of paradise at last. He sought an alcove of his cool harem, where, far beneath, he heard the Jumna's stream lapse soft and low along his palace wall, and all about the cool sound of the fall of fountains, and of water circling free through marble ducts along the balcony, the voice of women in the distance sweet, and sweeter still, of one who, at his feet, soothed his tired ear with songs of a far land where Tagus shatters on the salt sea sand the mirror of its cork-grown hills of drouth and valas of vine, at Lisbon's harbor-mouth. The date-palms rustled not, the people laid its topmost boughs against the balustrade, motionless as the mimic leaves and vines that, light and graceful as the shawl designs of Delhi or Amritsar, twined in stone, and the tired monarch, who aside had thrown the day's hard burden, sat from care apart, and let the quiet steal into his heart from the still hour. Below him Agra slept, by the long light of sunset overswept the river flowing through a level land, by mango groves and banks of yellow sand, skirted with lime and orange, gay kiosks, fountains at play, tall minarets of mosques, fair pleasure gardens, with their flowering trees relieved against the mournful cypresses, and air poised lightly as the blown sea foam. The marble wonder of some holy dome hung a white moonrise over the stillwood, glassing its beauty in a stiller flood. Silent the monarch gazed, until the night's swift falling hid the city from his sight. Then to the woman at his feet he said, Tell me, O Miriam, something thou hast read in childhood of the master of thy faith, whom Islam also owns. Our prophet saith he was a true apostle, yea, a word and spirit sent before me from the Lord, thus the book witnesseth, and well I know by what thou art, O dearest, it is so. As the lute's tone the maker's hand betrays, the sweet disciple speaks her master's praise. Then Miriam, glad of heart, for in some sort she cherished in the Moslem's liberal court the sweet traditions of a Christian child and through her life of sense, the undefiled and chaste ideal of the sinless one gazed on her with an eye she might not shun, the sad, reproachful look of pity, born of love that hath no part in wrath or scorn, began, with low voice and moist eyes, to tell of the all-loving Christ. And what befell when the fierce zealots, thirsting for her blood, dragged to his feet a shame of womanhood? How, when his searching answer pierced within each heart, and touched the secret of its sin, and her accusers fled his face before, he bade the poor one go and sin no more. And Akbar said, after a moment's thought, Wise is the lesson by thy prophet taught. Woe unto him who judges and forgets what hidden evil his own heart besets. Something of this large charity I find in all the sects that sever humankind. I would to Allah that their lives agreed more nearly with the lesson of their creed. Those yellow lamas who at merit pray by wind and water power, and love to say he who forgiveth not shall, unforgiven, fail of the rest of Buddha, and who even spare the black gnat that stings them, vex my ears with the poor hates and jealousies and fears nursed in their human hives. That lean, fierce priest of thy own people, be his heart increased by Allah's love. His black robes smelling yet of Goa's roasted Jews, have I not met meat-faced, barefooted, crying in the street the saying of his prophet true and sweet, He who is merciful shall mercy meet. But next day, so it chanced, as night began to fall, a murmur through the harem ran that one, recalling in her dusky face the full-lipped, mild-eyed beauty of a race known as the blameless Ethiops of Greek song, plotting to do her royal master wrong, watching, reproachful of the lingering light, the evening shadows deepen for her flight, love-guided, to her home in a far land, now waited death at the great Shah's command. Shapely as that dark princess for whose smile a world was bartered, daughter of the Nile herself, and veiling in her large, soft eyes the passion and the languor of her skies, the Abyssinian knelt low at the feet of her stern lord.
O king, if it be meet, and for thy honor's sake, she said, that I, who am the humblest of thy slaves, should die, I will not tax thy mercy to forgive. Easier it is to die than to outlive all that life gave me, him whose wrong of thee was but the outcome of his love for me, cherished from childhood, when, beneath the shade of templed oxum, side by side we played. Stolen from his arms, my lover followed me through weary seasons over land and sea, and two days since, sitting disconsolate within the shadow of the harem gate, suddenly, as if dropping from the sky, down from the lattice of the balcony fell the sweet song by Tigray's cowherd sung in the old music of his native tongue. He knew my voice, for love is quick of ear, answering in song. This night he waited near to fly with me. The fault was mine alone he knew thee not, he did but seek his own, who, in the very shadow of thy throne, sharing thy bounty, knowing all thou art, greatest and best of men, and in her heart grateful to tears for favor undeserved, turned ever homeward, nor one moment swerved from her young love. He looked into my eyes, he heard my voice, and could not otherwise than he hath done, yet save one wild embrace when first we stood together face to face, and all that fate had done since last we met seemed but a dream that left us children yet, he hath not wronged thee nor thy royal bed, spare him, O king, and slay me in his stead. But over Akbar's brows the frown hung black, and turning to the eunuch at his back, Take them, he said, and let the Jumna's waves hide both my shame and these accursed slaves. His loathly length the unsexed bondman bowed. On my head be it. Straightway from a cloud of dainty shawls and veils of woven mist the Christian Miriam rose, and stooping, kissed the monarch's hand. Loose down her shoulders bare swept all the rippled darkness of her hair, veiling the bosom that, with high, quick swell of fear and pity, through it rose and fell. Alas! she cried. Hast thou forgotten quite the words of him we spake of yesternight? Or thy own prophets, whoso doth endure and pardon, of eternal life is sure? O great and good! Be thy revenge alone felt and thy mercy to the erring shown. Let thwarted love and youth their pardon plead, who sin but in intent, and not in deed. One moment the strong frame of Akbar shook with the great storm of passion. Then his look softened to her uplifted face, that still pleaded more strongly than all words, until its pride and anger seemed like overblown, spent clouds of thunder left to tell alone of strife and overcoming. With bowed head and smiting on his bosom, God, he said, alone is great, and let his holy name be honored, even to his servant's shame. Well spake thy prophet, Miriam, he alone who hath not sinned is me to cast a stone at such as these, who hear their doom await, held like myself in the strong grasp of fate. They sin through love, as I through love forgive, take them beyond my realm, but let them live. And like a chorus to the words of grace, the ancient fakir, sitting in his place, motionless as an idol and as grim, in the pavilion Akbar built for him under the courtyard trees, for he was wise, knew menus laws, and through his close-shut eyes saw things far off, and as an open book into the thoughts of other men could look, began, half-chant, half-howling, to rehearse the fragment of a holy Vedic verse, and thus it ran. He who all things forgives conquers himself and all things else, and lives above the reach of wrong or hate or fear, calm as the gods, to whom he is most dear. Two leagues from Agra still the traveler sees the tomb of Akbar through its cypress trees, and near at hand, the marble walls that hide the Christian Begum sleeping at his side. And o'er her vault of burial, who shall tell if it be chance alone or miracle, the mission press with tireless hand unrolls the words of Jesus on its lettered scrolls, tells, in all tongues, the tale of mercy o'er, and bids the guilty. Go and sin no more! It now was dewfall. Very still the night lay on the lonely hill, down which our homeward steps we bent, and silent, through great silence went, save that the tireless crickets played their long, monotonous serenade. A young moon, at its narrowest, curved sharp against the darkening west, and momently the beacon star, slow wheeling o'er its rock afar, from out the level darkness shot one instant and again was not. And then my friend spake quietly the thought of both. Yon crescent sea! Like Islam's symbol moon it gives hints of the light whereby it lives somewhat of goodness, something true from sun and spirit shining through all faiths, all worlds, as through the dark of ocean shines the lighthouse spark, 
attests the presence everywhere of love and providential care. The faith the old Norse heart confessed in one dear name, the hopefulest and tenderest heard from mortal lips and pangs of birth or death, from ships ice-bitten in the winter sea, or lisp beside a mother's knee, the wiser world hath not outgrown, and the All-Father is our own. Nauhat, the deacon. Nauhat, the Indian deacon, who of old dwelt, poor but blameless, where his narrowing cape stretches its shrunk arm out to all the winds and the relentless smiting of the waves, awoke one morning from a pleasant dream of a good angel dropping in his hand a fair, broad gold piece, in the name of God. He rose and went forth with the early day far inland, where the voices of the waves mellowed and mingled with the whispering leaves, as, through the tangle of the low, thick woods, he searched his traps. Therein nor beast nor bird he found, though meanwhile in the reedy pools the otter plashed, and underneath the pines the partridge drummed, and as his thoughts went back to the sick wife and little child at home, what marvel that the poor man felt his faith too weak to bear its burden, like a rope that, strand by strand uncoiling, breaks above the hand that grasps it. Even now, O Lord, send me, he prayed, the angel of my dream. Now Hot is very poor, he cannot wait. Even as he spake he heard at his bare feet a low, metallic clink, and looking down, he saw a dainty purse with discs of gold crowding its silken net. A while he held the treasure up before his eyes, alone with his great need, feeling the wondrous coins slide through his eager fingers, one by one. So then the dream was true. The angel brought one broad piece only. Should he take all these? Who would be wiser in the blind, dumb woods? The loser, doubtless rich, would scarcely miss this dropped crumb from a table always full. Still, while he mused, he seemed to hear the cry of a starved child. The sick face of his wife tempted him. Heart and flesh in fierce revolt urged the wild license of his savage youth against his later scruples. Bitter toil, prayer, fasting, dread of blame, and pitiless eyes to watch his halting, had he lost for these the freedom of the woods, the hunting grounds of happy spirits, for a walled in heaven of everlasting psalms? One healed the sick very far off thousands of moons ago had he not prayed him night and day to come and cure his bedbound wife? Was there a hell? Were all his father's people writhing there, like the poor shellfish set to boil alive, forever, dying never? If he kept this gold, so needed, would the dreadful god torment him like a mohawk's captive stuck with slow-consuming splinters? Would the saints and the white angels dance and laugh to see him burn like a pitch-pine torch? His Christian garb seemed falling from him. With the fear and shame of Adam naked at the cool of day, he gazed around. A black snake lay in coil on the hot sand. A crow was sidelong I watched from a dead bough. All his Indian lore of evil blending with a convert's faith in the supernal terrors of the book, he saw the tempter in the coiling snake and ominous, black-winged bird, and all the while the low rebuking of the distant waves stole in upon him like the voice of God among the trees of Eden. Girding up his soul's loins with a resolute hand, he thrust the base thought from him. Now hot, be a man starve, if need be, but while you live, look out from honest eyes on all men unashamed. God help me. I am deacon of the church, a baptized, praying Indian. Should I do this secret meanness, even the bark and knots of the old trees would turn to eyes to see it, the birds would tell of it, and all the leaves whisper above me, now hot as a thief, the sun would know it, and the stars that hide behind his light would watch me, and at night follow me with their sharp, accusing eyes. Yeah, thou God, sayest me. Then now hot drew closer his belt of leather, dulling thus the pain of hunger and walked bravely back to the brown fishing hamlet by the sea, and pausing at the indoor, cheerily asked, Who hath lost aught today? I, said a voice, ten golden pieces, in a silken purse, my daughter's handiwork. He looked, and to one stood before him in a coat of frieze, and the glazed bat of a seafaring man, shrewd-faced, broad-shouldered, with no trace of wings. Marveling, he dropped within the stranger's hand the silken web, and turned to go his way. But the man said, A tithe at least is yours. Take it in God's name as an honest man. And as the deacon's dusky fingers closed over the golden gift, Yeah, in God's name I take it, with a poor man's thanks, he said. So down the street that, like a river of sand, ran, white in sunshine, to the summer sea, 
he sought his home singing and praising God, and when his neighbors in their careless way spoke of the owner of the silken purse, a well-fleet skipper, known in every port that the cape opens in its sandy wall, he answered, with a wise smile, to himself. I saw the angel where they see a man. 1870. The Sisters. Annie and Rhoda, sisters twain, woke in the night to the sound of rain. The rush of wind, the ramp and roar of great waves climbing a rocky shore. Annie rose up in her bedgown white, and looked out into the storm and night. Hush, and hearken, she cried in fear. Hearest thou nothing, sister dear? I hear the sea, and the plash of rain, and roar of the northeast hurricane. Get thee back to the bed so warm, no good comes of watching a storm. What is it to thee, I fain would know, that waves are roaring and wild winds blow? No lover of thine's afloat to miss the harbor lights on a night like this. But I heard a voice cry out my name, up from the sea on the wind it came. Twice and thrice have I heard it call, and the voice is the voice of Estwick Hall. On her pillow the sister tossed her head. Hall of the heron is safe, she said. In the tautest schooner that ever swam he rides at anchor in an isquam. And if in peril from swamping sea or lee shore rocks, would he call on thee? But the girl heard only the wind and tide, and wringing her small white hand she cried, O oh, sister Rhoda, there's something wrong, I hear it again, so loud and long. Annie! Annie, I hear it call, and the voice is the voice of Estwick Hall. Up sprang the elder, with eyes aflame. Thou least! He never would call thy name. If he did, I would pray the wind and sea to keep him forever from thee and me. Then out of the sea blew a dreadful blast, like the cry of a dying man at past. The young girl hushed on her lips a groan, but through her tears a strange light shone. The solemn joy of her heart's release to own and cherish its love and peace. Dearest, she whispered under breath, life was a lie, but true is death. The love I hid from myself away shall crown me now in the light of day. My ears shall never to woo a list, never by love or my lips be kissed. Sacred to thee am I henceforth, thou in heaven and I on earth. She came and stood by her sister's bed. Hall of the heron is dead, she said. The wind and the waves their work have done, we shall see him no more beneath the sun. Little will wreak that heart of thine, it loved him not with a love like mine. I, for his sake, were he but here, could hem and broider thy bridal gear. Though hands should tremble and eyes be wet, and stitch for stitch in my heart be set. But now my soul with his soul I wed, thine the living, and mine the dead. 1871. Marguerite. Massachusetts Bay, 1760. Upwards of one thousand of the Acadian peasants forcibly taken from their homes on the Gaspereau and Basin of Minas were assigned to the several towns of the Massachusetts colony, the children being bound by the authorities to service or labor. The robins sang in the orchard, the buds into blossoms grew, little of human sorrow the buds and the robins knew. Sick, in an alien household, the poor French neutral lay, into her lonesome garret fell the light of the April day, through the dusty window curtained by the spider's warp and woof, on the loose-laid floor of hemlock, on oaken ribs of roof, the bedquilts faded patchwork, the teacups on the stand, the wheel with flaxen tangle, as it dropped from her sick hand. What to her was the song of the robin, or warm morning light, as she lay in the trance of the dying, heedless of sound or sight? Done was the work of her bands, she had eaten her bitter bread, the world of the alien people lay behind her dim and dead. But her soul went back to its child time. She saw the sun o'erflow with gold the basin of Minas, and said over Gaspero, The low, bare flats at ebb tide, the rush of the sea at flood, through inlet and creek and river, from dyke to upland wood. The gulls in the red of morning, the fish hawks rise and fall, the drift of the fog and moonshine, over the dark coast wall. She saw the face of her mother, she heard the song she sang, and far off, faintly, slowly, the bell for vespers rang. By her bed the hard-faced mistress sat, smoothing the wrinkled sheet, peering into the face, so helpless, and feeling the ice-cold feet. With a vague remorse atoning for her greed and long abuse, by care no longer heeded and pity too late for use. Up the stairs of the garret softly the son of the mistress stepped, leaned over the headboard, covering his face with his hands, and wept. Outspake the mother, 
who watched him sharply, with brow a frown. What? Love you the papist, the beggar, the charge of the town? Be she papist or beggar who lies here, I know and God knows I love her, and fain would go with her wherever she goes. Oh, mother! That sweet face came pleading for love so athirst. You saw but the town charge. I knew her God's angel at first. Shaking her gray head, the mistress hushed down a bitter cry, and awed by the silence and shadow of death drawing nigh. She murmured a psalm of the Bible, but closer the young girl pressed, with the last of her life in her fingers, the cross to her breast. My son, come away, cried the mother, her voice cruel grown. She is joined to her idols, like Ephraim, let her alone. But he knelt with his hand on her forehead, his lips to her ear, and he called back the soul that was passing. Marguerite, do you hear? She paused on the threshold of heaven. Love, pity, surprise, wistful, tender, lit up for an instant the cloud of her eyes. With his heart on his lips he kissed her, but never her cheek grew red, and the words the living longed for he spake in the ear of the dead. And the robins sang in the orchard, where buds to blossoms grew, of the folded hands and the still face never the robins knew. 1871. The Robin. My old Welsh neighbor over the way crept slowly out in the sun of spring, pushed from her ears the locks of gray, and listened to hear the robin sing. Her grandson, playing at marbles, stopped, and cruel in sport as boys will be, tossed a stone at the bird, who hopped from bough to bough in the apple tree. Nay, said the grandmother. Have you not heard my poor bad boy of the fiery pit, and how, drop by drop, this merciful bird carries the water that quenches it? He brings cool dew in his little bill, and lets it fall on the soles of sin you can see the mark on his red breast still of fires that scorch as he drops it in. My poor brown ruddin! My breast-burned bird, singing so sweetly from limb to limb, very dear to the heart of our Lord is he who pities the lost like him. Amen! I said to the beautiful myth. Sing, bird of God, in my heart as well. Each good thought is a drop wherewith to cool and lessen the fires of hell. Prayers of love like raindrops fall. Tears of pity are cooling dew. And dear to the heart of our Lord are all who suffer like him in the good they do. 1871